Hi, my name is Michelle. And my name is Anisha, and we're the co-hosts of BBS Mindful Minutes. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Rojas, an associate professor and researcher for the Speech, Language, and Hearing Department of BBS here at UT Dallas. He and his team are pursuing to answer some challenging questions to better bilingual language development and learning in schools and at home. They have made some major impact on the Dallas community, but Dr. Rojas went through some hurdles to get to where he is today. So we hope you enjoy this candid and inspiring interview with Dr. Rojas. Let's get started. Again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, for the first question, could you just give first a brief a brief introduction of yourself um, and the type of research that your lab conducts and the questions that you guys are trying to answer? I'm Raul Rojas. I'm an associate professor at UT Dallas in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing. I have been here for 12 years now, and my lab is called the Bilingual Language Lab. And we do the work in my lab focuses on essentially the, the dual language development um, of bilingual kids, both kids who are typically developing and kids who have impairments. And in terms of questions that we are pursuing there, there's there's really like a, a wide range of um, projects that we've undertaken, things that we're working on now. If I had to try to summarize it or, or kind of um, give you kind of the, the, the elevator pitch of, of what we do is um, we're really trying to unpack um, in one degree, be able to sort of like characterize trajectories of dual language growth, but in another way to try to explain or to better understand why there's such a tremendous amount of variability in how different bilingual kids develop bilingually over time. And in order to do that, we have to, we just have to take into account lots of different um, variables, right? Obviously a key variable is what is happening as far as um, home language use uh, with the kid and the kid's family, right? Whether it's a single parent household or a two parent household or a multiple generational household, like wherever these kids are coming from, that's a key aspect that we've um, incorporated in our work. Think about it as kind of language exposure, right? So how much language is the kid being exposed to by different people in the, in the home, right? So let's say like mom and dad and older siblings and maybe peers outside of the home. So a lot of that is kind of this whole thing about input, but then we also ask questions about opportunities to use languages, right? So it's not just about what the kid's hearing, but it's also about who does the kid talk to and in what languages when the kid's at home, right? So we kind of ask those questions both in kind of both directions. And that's like a key aspect, right? Another key aspect is at what age did they start systematic well if they come from a home where they're primarily speaking english then you know that's not really you don't wonder about that but a lot of the kids that we end up tracking over time in our lab um not all of them but many of them come from homes where they where they primarily speak spanish or they will speak spanish and some english right and usually that's because there's different people in the home that are speaking different languages, right? And I would say for, especially for those kids, then one of the important questions is at what age, unless it was from birth, if it's not from birth, you know, at what age did they start systematically being exposed to English, right? And the way we like to sort of think about it is it either means they started going to 
preschool or potentially started attending like some type of what sometimes are referred to as two generation programs where there are programs that are geared for kids that are really young that are not yet in preschool, but they're trying to bring in the parent and the kid. And so, so for example, like Huaya from CCF, right? That's considered a two generation program because you have the parent and the kid, right? And they're both, there's a curriculum for both, right? But it's not five days a week, it's not preschool, it's different, but still, right? Um, um, so we, we try to sort of get a handle at, at what age are the kids being systematically and probably academically instructed in English. And then kids, when kids go to school in the United States, if if they're designated by the school as being an English learner, which means the school has done some type of proficiency testing, and they've determined that this particular kid does not possess um, the requisite skills to be able to be successful in an English-only classroom, right? Then this kid gets basically gets put into a category and the category is called or designation and it's called English learner. We're particularly focused on those kids who get designated as English learners, right? So these kids are kids who are bilingual, but they're also specifically kids that are going to be in some type of specific academic program of language instruction because they're English learners, right? And depending on the type of schools that they attend, it could be a variety of different programs. And so you can imagine that if a kid who comes in and not having enough language skills in English, and let's say they speak primarily Spanish, and they go to a structured English immersion program for from kinder through sixth grade versus if they go to a dual language education program, you could imagine that their development of their two languages is probably going to be maybe pretty different, right? Potentially because from Monday to Friday, arguably a very large proportion of their waking hours are being spent in a very particular language environment, right? And then they go home. When they go home, they're going to be in, a, in another language environment, right? So if it's a home that's primarily Spanish speaking and they're going to a structured English immersion classroom, they're going to be exposed to only English in the classroom. Then they go home and it's going to be only Spanish. If it's a dual language education or transitional bilingual education, it might it might not be of a drastic of a of a mismatch between what's happening in school and what's happening at home, right? There probably will still be some differences, but it probably won't be like completely different, right? But anyway, so we got kids all over this country who are you know designated as English learners, and that percentage of those kids who are designated in that category keeps expanding every year. There's more and more kids that are being designated in that category. There are sort of issues that people, I would say, not necessarily in speech language pathology, but I would say more in education. Um, they That population is, is a population of high interest and sometimes of concern, um, especially, especially with Spanish speaking English learners, not exclusively, but mostly them. There is just this long-standing history of, of an academic gap between kids who are designated as English learners versus kids who are not English learners in both their reading and their math performance. And essentially, like it looks like it takes the kids quite a bit of a long time to catch up, and some of them may never catch up, right? So it's just been this thing in the in the education world that people have been desperately trying to address, right? And so what I do in my lab kind of connects with that, right? My, my real sort of focus is to be able to understand that process of dual language development. But along that route, another piece that comes in is how do we properly identify 
like clinically identify kids who have actual language disorders versus a kid who doesn't know enough English, right? Because those are two different things, right? So a, a kid who really has a developmental language disorder, if that's what's happening, that kid will have difficulty learning one language, two languages, three languages. It won't matter. It won't be about the language, right? It will be about there's something impaired or disordered in the mechanism or mechanisms involved in acquiring just language. There's a lot of work we need to do in our discipline of, of, of communication disorders or speech pathology in terms of developing better methods and better tools that can do a more precise clinical identification. So right now we've been dealing with a problem for quite a while where it's an issue of clinical misidentification, right? There's just um, a large percentage of kids who get misidentified and the misidentification can be both ways, right? It can be, there are, there have been patterns that have been identified that I think are changing now, but they used to, it used to be a pattern of over-identification where, you know, if you think like 10, 15 years ago, the pattern was there was a lot of English learners that were being identified with communication disorders. And some of them, yes, they had communication disorders, but there was a large percentage that didn't, right? They were just being identified because they were being assessed mostly in English or the tools that were available at the time to assess, let's say their Spanish were not very good tools, right? Um, they were mostly like translations and translations are okay for some things, but for a language-based test, that's a really bad idea because languages are different, right? So when you translate things, a lot of things um, are just literally not valid, especially when you're testing like grammar, right? Um, and fast forward to now, and the problem I think has shifted, the misidentification problem has shifted somewhat in the sense that now what we're seeing are more patterns of under-identification. So it's almost like our reaction to the prior problem is like, oh, we're, we're, we're over-identifying kids. We need to like get better at it. And as we try to get better at it now, it's like the opposite thing because it's starting to happen. It's not really, we got to find, we got to find the, the precise way to identify these kids. What we see now, um, at least clinically, is we will see essentially decisions that are made by clinicians that will be based on the kids um, sort of quote unquote, giving the kids more time to learn English. So, you know, sometimes you do have kids who do have language disorders that should ideally be receiving therapy like as early as possible that may not because maybe they were tested when they were three years old and the decision made, the clinical decision made was like, well, you know, we probably should test this kid again like in a year or two years from now because we need them to learn more English. So in terms of like my lab, we're also focused on that piece too, which is one piece is this dual language development over time and how that unfolds and what, what can explain that, right? Um, why can we predict which kids are likely to over time to, to kind of show us quote unquote, very kind of balanced profiles of bilingualism versus very unbalanced profiles where you have a kid who's like very strong in one language, very weak in another language, right? And we know that those profiles exist. So we're doing some work towards that. Then the other piece is trying to better sort of identify these kids as early as possible. So there's a couple of new things that we're working on now. Some of them, there's a project that we're starting to collect data uh, on hopefully very soon. This kind of internally funded project uh, with, uh, I'm involved and so is Dr. McGuire, Dr. Owen and Dr. Kaufman, where the idea is we we're trying to determine through a kind of what we feel is a pretty, a pretty like culturally and linguistically sort of congruent screening protocol to determine um, whether 
there's potential over-identification or, or, or under-identification of Spanish-speaking um, children who are learning English, right? Um, and trying to better understand why the kids who may be showing profiles of risk, what explains those profiles of risk. And there's many other things we're working on, but those are, that kind of, I think, encapsulates what we're trying to do in the lab. So I know that was a lot, probably more than you wanted to know, but. No, that was amazing. That sort of like, was a bit of a catch-all because we're going to talk a little bit about the impact that your work has on the community. Um, mm-hmm. but I think you laid it out so wonderfully how um, intertwined the work that you do is with the community. And also it's really cool to hear how like slightly interdisciplinary it is or outwardly facing, um, mm-hmm. how it's looking to address these questions that are going on sort of within the educational sphere. And I think it's right. really cool to hear, especially, you know, as BBS students with constantly mm. thinking about the science and sort of look beyond that and see like what it is that we're studying and learning and how this goes on to impact things like you know like education and like where a lot of us came from a lot of students may have also been in ESL classes and like mm-hmm. familiar so it's it's so cool to hear how like intertwined yeah. the community your work is yeah thank you you yeah, know I think this is largely driven by the fact that you're going to realize how old I am when I was applying for grad school, coming out of college, right? I, I was an international student. I'm originally from Mexico City, so I was an international student, right? And so, as you all may be aware, the inter- international students, we have to figure out what we're doing like two years ahead of time, right? We can't just figure it out like a semester ahead of time because otherwise we'll have to leave the country. So, you know, two years ahead of time, I started thinking like, okay, I want to stay in the US and I want to keep studying. So, what am I going to do, right? So my undergraduate education was in psychology. It was actually a lot of neuropsychology stuff. Um, I did like stereotactic rat surgery, like and all kinds of things. It was kind of very neuro oriented. Um, but then I also, so I kind of had like a, that was like a major. My minor was in Latin American studies. So that's when I started realizing this whole issue of language and bilingualism and how important it was to me growing up. I needed to kind of find what made sense for me to do as a graduate student. And all of those experiences put together, right? The fact that I grew up in a different country, that I only only grew up speaking Spanish. The fact that I had to learn English later in life, right? When I started going, when my family moved to the border with, with, it's called Tamaulipas, it's a state in Mexico, it borders Texas. Uh, I went through all of those experiences, right? So I I was basically an English learner right? That's kind of like the definition of an English learner. And I kind of went through all of that, you know, and it really impacted me. And I, I felt like this particular career path would allow me to actually not just study that, but it would allow me to kind of hopefully positively impact kids who were going through the same process, especially kids who would have disorders, right? So... I don't believe I have a language disorder, but I've never tested myself. So who knows, right? <laughs> I believe I'm typically developing, but I guess the verdict is out. But um, but yeah, I think all those experiences put together motivate and guide my program of research, right? So I want my program of research, yes, I want to advance the evidence base. I want to be able to generate empirical findings that um, are meaningful um, and not necessarily just programmatic which is good too, but I also want my work to have impact, right? And so part of that is the translational nature of hopefully your work. And that's that's really one of my primary aims, right? I want my work to be able to, you know, and, and this is, it ends up being like a gradual process, but as much as possible, I want my work to be able to impact 
actual clinical practice. And I also want my work to hopefully be able to kind of inform because I'm not an education researcher, but I do want my work to be able to inform potentially decisions that are made in the sphere of education of like public schools in the United States, right? So that's that's not my expertise, but my work interfaces with that, right? It just, it's unavoidable to not interface with that with the work that I do. So I feel my work impacts the community and kind of a number of different ways. At the little kid level, I've been able to, to make some inroads in being able to to come up ways where we can more precisely measure the dual language skills that these kids have and what weaknesses and strengths they have in each language um, and also kids who have to seem to be having difficulties acquiring a language like what what are some of those breakdowns in each language right and in terms of kids when they enter school i know my work has had a very direct impact because the we we work primarily with one school that's kind of in, in the kind of South Dallas kind of Oak Cliff area, and this is a school where they it's a their program is structured English immersion. There it's about ninety eight percent of the kids are Hispanic, ninety one percent speak Spanish at home, so most of them do, and a lot of them speak Spanish and English at home. So they they have a really wide profile of kids. So we have been doing a longitudinal project with them almost nine years now. So we've tracked multiple cohorts of kids from from when they entered preschool at three years old through when they graduated from that school in fifth grade, right? So we have a lot of longitudinal data on these kids on multiple cohorts of kids. And every year I, I provide the, the teachers and the parents like an update on our findings, right? And I would say probably about four years in to this longitudinal project, one of, I mean, one of the many findings we were finding <laughs> is that all the kids were learning English really quickly, right? And so the school was happy to hear that. They, they kind of knew that, but they were happy to see the actual data. But there was a subset of kids whose Spanish language skills continued to make progress. So both languages were continuing to, you know, to develop and get more sophisticated. And then there was a subset of kids where even though their English acquisition was, was very aggressive and positive, their Spanish language skills started to, they kind of reached the point where they started kind of plateauing. And then later in time, it actually started getting worse. They started losing or, you know, this declining, right? That trajectory started having this negative slope and that got their attention. And they were like, oh, you know, and then, and then they started kind of making connections and they were like, okay, who are some of them? We started trying to try to identify what's going on with some of these kids and not all the kids, but some of these kids having some degree of kind of both behavioral and kind of like social um, difficulties that started to emerge. And sometimes some of that was driven with parents that some of these kids suddenly couldn't communicate as well with their parents anymore. And so they started getting concerned. They were like, well, wait, like we love the fact that they're all learning English, but we don't like the fact that some of these kids are losing their Spanish. So what has happened, I would say over the last almost four years is they, we, we started kind of like a new, it's the same project, but we had a part to the pro, part of the longitudinal project where they started developing essentially a pilot program. And that was a finalized program that was, and the program was really oriented towards parents parents of preschool children. And the goal of this program was to essentially provide a lot of tools and training and education to the parents, because there's a lot of misinformation about bilingualism. And so it's very common for parents 
of a, if the parents themselves are not bilingual and they don't really speak much English, it's not unusual to find parents they want their kids to learn English because they want their kids to have you know a good life and a better life than they did. Because of that, the pediatrician may tell them or someone at church may tell them or a teacher may tell them. So it could be whoever, right? But they do hear conflicting sources of information. A lot of times the message that they're getting is you should talk to your kids in English. Don't talk to them in Spanish because that's going to like slow them down. <laughs> and so that's kind of the message. And then the problem is for the parents who don't speak English, then they feel like, they probably shouldn't talk to their kids much because, or they try to talk to their kids in English using a very poor language model because they don't know English themselves, right? So it just it's, it becomes a problem, obviously. And the the purpose of this pilot program that the school wanted to develop to address some of the things we were finding in our in our data was to be able to provide parents tools, education, resources to really encourage the sustained use of whatever language they spoke at home. It wasn't about only speak this or only speak that. It was about like, whatever you're comfortable speaking at home, like keep doing it. Like don't suppress your communication with your kid because you don't speak English, right? Um, we're in the middle of that project. We're in the third year of that project. Uh, and we've seen some interesting um, outcomes in the sense that, yes, it's it's kind of what we would hope to see that the kids in this, in this pro- that have been going through this program, we're not seeing as quick of a decline in their Spanish. The growth isn't as aggressive as the English growth, we need to look at the data long in, in, in a couple of years down the road. But what we have so far is from for the for that cohort, it's like from pre-K three to about like first grade, second grade, depending on what cohort the kids were in. And yeah, we're we're starting to see, I guess, more of a the increased support that the parents are providing for the kids at home in their native language is helping the kids to kind of ward off this process of potential like first language loss, right? So that's been really cool to see, right? That the school was concerned about it, that they did something about it. I mean, they're weighing now whether potentially to start making some changes in their curriculum, right? Because they've only been structuring English immersion and they're they're nervous. They're nervous about like, do we want to start doing some either transition of bilingual education or do language education, but they've never done that, right? And so they're all, so but they're starting to consider little things, right? An hour of Spanish a day or something, you know. So they've been really great to work with. So I would say that's that's a really nice impact at the kind of school, teacher, parent level. Um, and then I would say the other level is in terms of training students here at UTD, right? So training both students who are undergrads who wanna have a research experience. I've had a lot of undergrads come through my lab and do research in my lab and they, I believe they learn a lot and they get, they get some good experience and good skills coming out. And then a lot of training on master students, right, in both research and clinical practice. And so that's been really nice to be able to impact uh, the clinical training of, of future clinical providers. You know, it's kind of like, like you're one person, but then you're able to impact all these people that are going to go out and provide clinical services to kids. And you want them to hopefully be able to do it in the most sort of evidence-based way possible, right? And so they're doing the right things, right? And then the other training is at the PhD level, right? So in the past, I finished with two doc students and my prior doc students, one of them is an assistant professor now in Connecticut and the other one's doing a postdoc in Delaware. And then my three current doc students are in their fourth year, fifth year, I think, of their PhD. So so they, they're starting to work on the dissertations and, you know, we'll see what happens with them. But that's been really cool too, right? To kind of train these other 
kind of future clinical scholars in this area too. And they, and, you know, they all have very unique questions that they're pursuing that I haven't told you guys about, but some of it's related to what I do, but some of them are doing stuff that's like really their own, their own work, um, which is really, really nice. Yeah. It's amazing to, to hear that, you know, from your experience of growing up um, as an international student and then having to basically you went through that struggle of going to college, supporting yourself financially. Um, oh, I worked every English. single capital job you can think. I worked in the cafeteria. <laughs> I was like a, I was the driver yes. who would pick up university guests. I worked in this like event center. Like I did, I delivered newspapers. I did everything I could, but you know, I could only work in the university, right? Because of my, yeah. my F1 visa. But, but man, I worked, I've worked probably like three or four jobs a semester. I mean, and I did yes. research. Yes, you know, exactly. You to, you know, my parents couldn't pay for anything. It's like, exactly. You know, yes, they, their right. income was in pesos, which is like the currency exchange is like terrible. So <laughs> I bet it's, yeah. it's just it's just amazing because that that system is still in place. You know, that American dream that you can get a good job and you can yeah, be successful, yeah. but then they don't teach you the logistics the reality of it, that you need to work three, four jobs, be a full-time student, um, mm-hmm. be a first-generation student, you know, going oh, to the yeah. ins and outs, yeah. having to get that connection. That so for you to be able to to set that stage for a lot of students, it's amazing. Yeah. And, um, you know, at UTD, we have so many international students um, mm-hmm. and we still see that happening. So to know that there's a program out there, your research specifically, to know that your background is so similar, it's still continuing for so many other students who are first-generation students. And then yeah. having to also, a lot of students will also have to support their families from back home financially as well. So yeah. you understanding that. Oh yeah, I still do that, that. this day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, <laughs> yeah. Like every month, because like they... They, they need it. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. So you'll be able to to be there for those students. You can't be able to really relate without truly experiencing the, those hardships, those adversities. So to know that you started from the bottom all the way to this level of research and you may not feel like, <laughs> like it. it. You may not feel no, like it. No, no, it just like, like, it reminds me of like the Drake song, right? Like, but yeah. <laughs> from the bottom. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I've never heard anybody say that, but yeah, that, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true though. You did start from yeah. supporting yourself. <laughs> so it's amazing to for you to be able to also support um, families in the community um, right. who don't have those resources, who doesn't, who can't financially seek those programs and mm-hmm. for you yeah. to actually have empirical research to have these programs in place that's such that's the most important thing like for policy making for these programs to be yeah. in place for the reason for funding to be in, taken it's mm-hmm. because of that research so but we hope yeah. that listeners who are listening to this who feels like <laughs> they're starting from the bottom <laughs> um hopefully like yeah, they know that it takes can, time yeah there's there's a light at the end of the tunnel but yeah requires a lot of hard work dedication sacrifice for sure um but but there are wonderful opportunities um, in the United States, right? Whether you stay in mm-hmm. academia or you decide to pursue careers outside of academia. I mean, yeah, we those of us who are able to to take advantage. I mean, it's yeah. There's a lot of amazing, wonderful opportunities, but yeah, they require it requires a lot of focus and yes, yes, yes. Hard work. You know, 
Yeah. Yes. And I think that another impact is that, as you said, you're, you being able to like open the door for many students, it creates many other doors for other students. So it's becoming yeah. more diverse and, and more realistic of what America really is, like <laughs> the population, mm-hmm. the, you know, yeah. um, because there's still yeah, I mean, there's, to improve. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, to be able to to make systematic change in that regard, but I, you know, I believe we're we're doing great things at, at UTD to be able to, to do that. Like the the REU program is like a, a massive part of of, of mm-hmm. taking a step in that direction, right? Um, but yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, preaching the choir. We're preaching Drake and the choir. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So which question should we? I have a follow up. Um, yeah. Sure. Don't want to echo everything Anisha said, but I'm obviously a really big fan of what your work does for the community. Um, but one of the questions we wanted to ask is um, what we what research in the field is exciting to you right now? God, there's a lot of things that I think are exciting. I think there's an increasing amount of work that has the potential to be able to help us be able to provide essentially, especially in the area of clinical assessment. I'm gonna start there because I think on the treatment, on the intervention, and I think we're a little we're a little further away, but at least in the in the clinical assessment piece, you know, I know that there are a number of different efforts and we're we're part of one of those efforts. Um, where we're trying to determine whether there are essentially ways to kind of measure skills that, you know, you want to obviously measure language skills, but can you measure other skills that are related to language acquisition that may not be entirely language specific? Would that make sense? So really thinking more of like processing skills that kids may have, right? And some of that could be quote unquote linguistic processing where you're using essentially stimuli, I'm going to call them quote unquote, these kind of like artificial type languages or like non-word type uh, stimuli to to non-linguistic processing type tasks that may relate to language acquisition skills, right? And so those could be a variety of different things, but I think there's that there's a lot of potential in that area. It's it's not super well um, researched yet, but I think there's there's an increasing number of people who are starting to look at those pieces, those aspects because some of those hypotheses bear out is could have a pretty significant impact on how we clinically assess kit. You know, something else that I'm excited about and and this is partly because I'm doing it, but there's some people are doing it, but I just feel like, oh, it's like one of these areas that I've always found interesting, but I've just never had the time, but I'm finally feeling like I have some some time, which is in the field of communication disorders, there's just such a range of disorders that you can try to, to identify and then treat, right? So yeah, you have language, you have speech sound production, um, but then you have stuttering, right? So um there are kids who who stutter, who continue to stutter, and then they become adolescents and adults who stutter, right? So in order for us to be able to identify stuttering in bilingual kids, just to be honest with you, we don't know what we're doing. We, we don't have normative data. We don't know what to expect of typically developing kids who don't stutter, who are bilingual. Um, we use guidelines that are established. There's a kind of guidelines in terms of of speech disfluencies and 
this fluency disorder is very complicated because part of it is like the speech disfluency part. Another part of it is there's this massive social emotional component that that happens. But in terms of the speech production piece of it, there's criteria that are really well established for monolingual English speaking children, right? So like if they, if there's this threshold of doing these kinds of fluencies and you have this higher proportion, you're either really highly at risk or you definitely are, are a person who stutters, right? We don't know what those are for, for bilingual kids, right? So, so I'm starting up a, a project. I started about a year and a half ago with a colleague who's an expert in fluency disorders. And we're kind of, our goal is to kind of kind of join forces, if you will, to try to start to untangle this part of clinical practice and starting with how how do speech production disfluencies manifest themselves over time in bilingual kids and how does that relate to changing dual language proficiency for these kids, right? Um, in kids who don't stutter. Like we're gonna start with kids who don't stutter, right? Um, but what do their yeah, what do their dual language profiles look like over time and how do those relate to essentially their fluency profiles over time, right? Because, and try to be able to kind of provide hopefully some data that eventually will be useful to clinicians. So I think that that part, I think is kind of quite exciting because it's wide open. Like we we know what we, the evidence that we have in that area is, is, is very thin at this point. And, you know, there's other people who are also starting to look at this, but... I feel like that that area has a lot of potential, and again, to have a really large clinical impact eventually. So that would be that would be nice. Yeah, and I guess sort of going off of that um, in a way that sort of leads really well, as you've sort of talked about this new budding area of research that you're really excited about. Um, what challenges do you encounter when researching language development um, when doing like these long longitudinal studies like your lab does? So often? No, it's a good question. I mean, I should specify, right? Like longitudinal work, we often think about it as it taking place over really protracted periods of time, right? Um, and that's definitely what I do. <laughs> that's totally true. Like, that's what I do, right? Because I want to know what happens as kids get older, right? You could technically study anything longitudinally. The metric of time could be different, right? You could look at you know, how quickly a virus replicates over time. And that could be longitudinal, right? You could, even in the context of an intervention study, right? You could, you could develop an intervention study and do like a randomized control trial of this study where, you know, you have a certain dosage of some type of language intervention or, or intervention for speech sound production. And maybe you implement it over a, like a six-week period, right? And you look to see what happens four weeks later when you do, don't do the intervention. Right? You get to see like how much change there is, but then you also get to see like, is that maintained or, or do you need to continue doing intervention to maintain that level of, you know, of skill or of ability? Disclaimer. Uh, out of mind. Yeah, what I do takes years and years and years and years. Um, and so the challenges, I think, are what you would expect. Um, you have to have a team of researchers that is obviously not every member of the team stays with you for the whole duration, but you need to have this system where you have people who can train people because eventually people, you know, leave, right? <laughs> You know, like in like for me, I've been very fortunate. I've had like wonderful students in my lab, but obviously the students all graduate and they like do other things. So, you know, to be able to sort of create this kind of operation where you can maintain 
that continuity over time is is important, but that is challenging. It requires just constant attention, monitoring, checking in, right? Part of it is maintaining relationships too with essentially, I'm going to say kind of like your partners in the community, not only that they're giving you access to potentially connect with families and kids, but that they're deriving ideally some type of like positive outcomes from the research that you're doing, right? Um, whether that's information or whatever it might be, right? You, you need to keep them engaged um, and interested, right? So that's definitely another part of the challenge. And then the other part is being able to, to maintain as many of the families and the kids in your research study for as long as possible. Same thing, right? Some families move, some families like may decide they don't want their their child to participate anymore for whatever reason. So all of those things, they require a lot of just constant, I'm just going to call it monitoring and attention. Right? You have to maintain those relationships. You have to be checking in with people, right? You have to have, you have to make sure that the people in your research team also know how to communicate with families, how to communicate with teachers, how to communicate with kids, right? Because every, everyone who works on your research team is, is, is essentially a, a reflection of your lab, right? And what we do, yeah, all the work that we do, I would say, well, maybe not all the work, 90% of the work that we do, we don't do it in the lab. We like go to where the kids are. So we have to, we just have to maintain those relationships because that's super critical, right? So I would say all of those things are, and I think anyone you talk to who does longitudinal work that takes years will tell you that they're probably facing the same the same challenges. Um, but I think that's just pretty, pretty inherent to doing longitudinal work. I've gotten used to it, so I don't I don't think about it as a big problem, but but it is something that just requires constant monitoring and attention. I think even in like the molecular, you know, wet lab work that I do. The amount of attention that PIs have to invest in keeping the research machine going as students come in and out, it's its a lot. So kudos to you. Um, and I guess maybe on the flip side of that, we can sort of close off with this question, which is, what is the best part of your work? We've talked a little bit about the challenges, but what is uh-huh. that excites you the most about it? And what can yeah, it's it? a great question. It's really wonderful to be able to publish your work. It's it's wonderful to be able to get like support in terms of funding, whether it's from a federal agency or a foundation or an organization. All of those things are like really great. Um, and then they require a lot of work and you never know, right? When you submit a paper, you never know if it's going to get published or if it's going to get rejected. And same thing with a grant, right? Like it might not get funded. They usually don't get funded, you know? So, but when those things happen, you're super happy. I love that part of the process, right? But what I think I love more above all of that sort of aspect of what we do as, as researchers for me is being able to just have an impact on kids and families and an impact on my students. I think that for me is like the, one of the coolest things, right? It's not uncommon for me to kind of sometimes hear from a student two or three years later that they're working clinically and they tell me about something that they did, which was really cool. And, you know, how it helped them about they did X, Y, and Z in the lab or this thing that they read or whatever. And I'm just like, wow, that's really, I mean, I love that. And then same thing, like with my, you know, that would be kind of the, the folks who are working as, as clinicians, as speech language pathologists, but then, um, also with my doc students, you know, the ones who have finished up kind of watching them, their careers sort of unfold has been really nice to, uh, to kind of see some of the really cool things they're working on and and, and have, watching them have an impact on their own is is very rewarding. So, yeah, for me, that's that's probably the, 
most gratifying thing above everything. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Nisha, do you have any closing questions? No, I love that. (laughs) No, yes. Um, I just had a question about, um, as a researcher, basically as an expert in bettering education for bilingual students, what changes would you like to see in and outside of the classroom to help better support EL students? What changes would I like to see? One change would be that I think overall, and this is not just communication disorders, I just think this is us. I think this is any allied health provider, whether it's physical therapy, occupational therapy, but also anyone in education, whether you're a teacher or your support staff, um, principal, whatever you are, if you're involved in working with kids, right? You're involved working with kids who are learning English as a second language. I think just being able to, for people to be better informed would be so great. <laughs> you know, and I feel like, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for quite a while. And I mean, things definitely have, you know, I've definitely seen improvements, but, but I've realized now that you're always going to have to sort of, again, it's going to be, it's going to be an ongoing thing. You're going to have to be trying to educate and advocate for kids and provide information to as many of the stakeholders that I'm going to call them as possible. that are having direct contact with kids. And yes, it starts with parents, but eventually the kids go to school. So when they go to school, the way always parents, yes, obviously they're, they live at home with their parents. So you got to make, keep that connection, but then you got to like try to have as much of an impact on everyone else who's having contact with the kids. Right. And then, yeah, when the kids go to school, they're having contact with lots of other adults um, who are, you know, having an influence on these kids too. So um, just having better information about bilingualism, bilingual language development, right? Where, you know, and, and to kind of, I would say, try to address kind of like a lot of fears and frankly, a lot of myths that there are about, about raising a kid bilingually or, or being able to maintain your native language with your kid, even though you're considering English in school. I think being able to, you know, and again, this could impact, again, now I'm thinking people in the schools, but it's also if a kid's getting therapy, you know, pediatricians, I mean, just everyone, just having having better, that these folks could have better access to information, but it really kind of comes down to, to doing a better job of trying to train people properly, right? I think that would be so incredibly beneficial. And then inside the classroom, I mean, part of what I said applies inside the classroom, but then I think, you know, there are people who are working on this. It's not like no one's working on this. Yeah, but I think there's a need to kind of better integrate, like, for example, some of the stuff that I do, but then there's, I have colleagues who do other work that's that's also super valuable, but being able to better integrate this work from our discipline, from communication disorders on, on dual language development and disorders and in curriculum development for bilingual kids in schools, we need to be better about starting to make more direct connections uh, because I feel like we're, some of the work that we do, I think can be like so beneficial for curriculum development, but we know that oral language skills are very highly predictive of early and later literacy skills in kids. Right. So, but we need to kind of better understand that connection and to try to try to come up with ways to provide academic instruction to kids that can ideally benefit there's what I'm going to call kind of their strengths in, in languages, right? Uh, I think that would be 
that would be great for kids because um, then you're going to have kids who are going to be happier at school. You're going to have kids who are going to learn how to read earlier. They're going to, and then they're hopefully will be kind of just better overall, um, like consumers of information, right? Um, hopefully better writers. So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of work to be done, but I would say that requires efforts from, from multiple disciplines, but being able to kind of integrate things a little bit better, I think would be really great. But I mean, that's, that's, that's a long-term sort of process. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely working towards that. Thank you for listening to BBS Mindful Minutes. We hope that you enjoyed and feel inspired by Dr. Rojas's story. And thank you to Dr. Rojas for your unique insight and candidness. This episode is brought to you by the DTD School of Behavior and Brain Sciences. To listen to more episodes similar to this episode, follow BBS Mindful Minutes on wherever you listen to your podcasts and stay tuned for the next episode. We will talk to you soon.